Let's do life of Christ. Let's talk about some of those pharisaical rules that we'll get into a little bit. We're in that last few months of his ministry. Jesus is traveling through the region from outside Israel, Priya, headed for Jerusalem during the last few weeks, the last three months in particular. He is going there, and on his way, he's going to give a lot of different messages. Luke is the only one who records this. The comments that he makes in this few-week journey back to Jerusalem where he's going to die, and as he's going, he makes a lot of different statements. Luke 15, we're in the middle of that one, where he's talking about God's attitude towards sinners. He had just had a meal with uh, some Pharisees, and these Pharisees were very, very, very concerned about Jesus and his relationship with the ungodly. And the reason is, is look at your FYI, or halfway down, they taught God hates sinners, but loves the righteous. That is them. Okay, There is joy before God when he, when those who provoke him perish from the world. They taught God delights in the death and the destruction of the wicked people. So Jesus has this opportunity to talk with them. And what he does is he speaks a parable that basically has three different chapters to it. And so therefore, when in Luke 15 it says he spake this singular parable, we have to look at the common threads. You pointed out last week that the story of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son had these common denominators. Something precious is lost. That lost item is longed for, looked for. It is found. When it is found, there's great rejoicing over the item. Jesus offers explanation like he does once in a while in parables. You find the explanation, chapter 15, verse 7 and verse 10. If you look at it, he says, I say in the same way there is rejoicing in heaven when the lost is found. And so he gives explanation. He tells us what the story is all about and gives the details. Now, we talked about the lost sheep and how it was a common commodity. They would understand how precious the sheep was. They would agree with it that somebody needs to leave the 99 in somebody else's care. Go find it. And his point is, basically, by illustration, you Pharisees are wrong. You do not understand how much God cares for all the individuals. Even one wayward sheep, God will go way out of his way in order to recover that one wayward sheep. And so his point is, God loves sinners. God delights, does not delight in their death. God is delighted, and so is all of heaven, when that individual repents and is brought back to the fold. Now, let's go to the second one that we talked about last week. Oop, I got the lost coin um, uh, erased. The lost son, the lost coin we talked about last week is that woman loses her coin, her dowry, and then she finds that she's all excited. The lost son, the story you're familiar with, he has two boys, they're both working for him, they're, they're coming of age, the one asks for his inheritance before dad dies, he goes off, he gets into a wild party lifestyle, he has lots of friends until what happens? Yeah, he's got no more money to pay for everything. He ends up working eventually, begging and working for a guy who's a pig farmer. The irony is, to a Jewish crowd, who would work for a pig farmer? Somebody who is absolutely destitute at the end of their ropes. And so here he is, he realizes that the pigs are doing better than him and his dad's servants are doing better than him. So he came to his senses, the passage says, and he says, I'm going to go back to my dad. And when I get back to my dad, I'm going to have this speech, Father, I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Restore me as one of your servants. And so as he's going, there's a couple little things now. This guy wants to repent in the story that Jesus is giving. He makes a couple comments that we we just kind of glossed over last week. Verse 20. He rose, he came to his father, and when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. What's that indicate about dad? He's looking for him. Dad has compassion. What does dad do? The rest of the phrase. 
He runs to him, which is very atypical of ancient world and probably of our world too. Older people do not run, okay, because they can't. No, because in that culture it was just abnormal, very atypical for an older person to run, which means that this father had what kind of attitude towards the boy? Compassion, desire, a longing, you name it, it's there. You can understand if this way, if you were in that situation. He's using a story that could happen in anybody's family without names. It's a fictional story, but it's real enough that all of us could relate and say, Yeah, I understand that. I understand how somebody would be moved, would run, would go to them. The boy is not able to get through his speech. He's prepared. Dad cuts him off. And it says in the text, as we pick up, that when dad grabs him and the boy starts saying, Verse 21, I have sinned against heaven in your sight, no more worthy to be called your son. The father said to him, or the father interrupts him. Okay, he doesn't get to the part like, make me as one of your servants. But the father now orders several things to be done. Okay, and he does several things. Now looking at verse 22, he gives them these gifts. He gives them a robe, and remember in Bible days, um, it's not unusual to get a robe of many colors. Okay, the robe of many colors, the colors in robes would indicate authority, responsibility. That would be your designation if you were in charge. Joseph getting the robe of many colors back in that ancient era was that it wasn't that he was given something that was psychedelic and weird. It was he was elevated above his brothers. Those colors would indicate his, the dad's preferential treatment. So the son is getting a robe indicating heirship, indicating he still has relationship with dad. Dad has not cut it off. That's an important thought. He also gives him a, ba- a ring, which would indicate authority as well, the authority to be able to make decisions. And so this dad's restoring him to a place of privilege and responsibility. He gives the provision of, this, of, the, of the clothing and elevation. He also, remember in Bible days, oftentimes the servants were barefoot. The people in the house, they would wear some type of shoes. The fatted calf is usually one kind of an animal that was saved for a special celebration. Dad says, this is it. Special, special event. Let's, let's break out the fatted calf. Let's have this celebration. Jesus is highlighting several things. The unworthiness of the son. Okay? And remember, now the Pharisees are upset that Jesus is hanging around uh, the tax collectors. He's hanging around the lower life, the poor, the maimed, the lowly. That, the Pharisees wouldn't touch. They would have nothing to do with the sickly. They wouldn't even get close to them. Okay? They would, be, they would have an aversion to them as well as the poor. And Jesus is saying, wait a minute, this son is totally unworthy. However, he says, the boy had a repentant attitude. So about all these people hanging around me. They're showing repentance. And so he highlights the idea of mercy and forgiveness by the Father. And he's making a spiritual picture here that is very, very important, adding to it that God delights in the repentance of individuals who have even gotten into sinful situations. God doesn't hold it against them forever. He delights in their repentance. And by the way, you and I have got to say at this moment, thank God he does. Okay, because a lot of us were in that spot. We were there where we were involved in garbage. Some of you had the privilege of growing up in Christian homes, and thank God you were saved 
uh, from sin. That's a privilege. Some of us had to be saved out of sin, and that's by the mercy and grace of God. And so there's a thrill here that he's given the story. But then he, he could have stopped. He could have ended the story, and the point was the parallel point of all three stories would have been made. But he adds in another section. The other section that he adds is a story about who? Okay, the other boy, the elder boy. And uh, he's going to make some parallels here. So before we go into that section, let's just make our analogies very simple. Okay, God wants to recover lost sinners. And that includes you and me. Okay, we're thankful for that. God goes through great effort to try and recover lost souls. Thank God he does. He got you the gospel. He sent people. He put up with some of the things in your life. He tried to arrange events to bring you to a low point in your life where you would humble yourself and repent. And God does a lot of effort to do that. God rejoices when a lost soul is recovered. And so does all of heaven. So we know what, what some of our beloved ones and loved ones are doing in heaven. They're part of the celebration, understanding how great heaven is, knowing that one more got saved today. One more got saved an hour ago. They're celebrating that they know in the future they're going to join them. Recovering of a, recovering, uh, recovery of a soul requires they must repent of their actions and attitudes. Here we go back to Jesus was opposed to easy believism. He is, by illustration, saying the individual to have restoration must have have a spirit of repentance. And so he preached that elsewhere. John preached that. He preached that. They have to admit their folly, their sinfulness, and seek his forgiveness, not their own reformation. And he's given stories about that. He told about the one man who tried to reform himself by kicking out the demon, but then what happened when he just tried to live a good lifestyle? Seven more moved in. Okay, you need to have that work of the Spirit in your heart in order to have complete forgiveness and restoration. Let's make another point. God anxiously is waiting for repentance. He is looking. He is longing for it. He labors for it, but he is looking for it. Although God is aware, this is interesting. The reason I make this statement, God is aware of our sinful state. He waits for us to come to the place where, he will, where we will repent. Okay? He doesn't force our repentance. Now, he is aware of it. He might be bringing the conviction. He is bringing circumstances, but he doesn't force us. The reason I say that is in this story, the father does the father know what the son is into? He does. Look at what happens at the, towards the end of the story. Verse 25 and 26. The older son comes back. He draws nigh. He hears the music celebration, the dancing. He calls for the servants. What's going on? Your brother has come. Your father's killed the fatted calf. He is angry. He would not go in. Therefore, his father comes in and begs him, come on in. And he says, lo, these many years I have served you, neither transgressed. I at any time your commandment. But yet... You never gave me a party to make merry. But as soon as your son has come, which, look at, he knows details. He has devoured his living with harlots. Okay, he knows where he's been. They had an awareness of some of the garbage the boy has gotten into. And so, same way, God knows what we're into, but God is patiently waiting. He does not force. The father did not force the repentance upon the son. The son had to make a move. Okay, and so we make this comment. Confession of repentance results in restoration to the celebrated position of sonship. It doesn't mean in every case we get restored totally to the place of everything 
every responsibility, there are consequences. But by mercy, by grace, we get a restoration far beyond what we deserve. And so we have that account about sinners coming back. Jesus now goes on and talks about the older brother who is an illustration of not the sinners and God, but he's an illustration of what group of people that Jesus is talking to. The Pharisees. He uses the completion of the story to tell the Pharisees, this is what you're like. By contrast, you, you say God doesn't celebrate. He does. He does celebrate. He is excited that next to me are all these maimed, these sinful people. If the problem isn't, isn't that God isn't excited. The problem is with you. You guys are like this older brother. And he goes on and tells about it. We already read the older brother comes back from laboring. The older brother is really upset that the father is giving forgiveness to his brother who's come back. And what he does is he points out his own righteousness. He points out how he has been faithful. He has done all these works. His relationship with his father is based upon his works, his personal faithfulness, his personal activity in farming and doing whatever he was required to do. He refuses to participate in the celebration. He's not going to go and get near his brother. He wants nothing to do with him. Jesus could not be clearer in making the analogy that this is what you Pharisees are like. You are... you. When a man gets healed on the Sabbath day, a woman gets healed on the Sabbath day, instead of getting excited, what do the Pharisees do? They get angry. They get angry with what Jesus is doing, restoring people spiritually, restoring them physically. Boy, the, the analogy is so clear that he is pointing out. And so he's, he's laid it upon the Pharisees. They did not celebrate. They're very angry with Jesus for who he accepts. And then what he does with the story... What's the conclusion? The father is begging the older son. Come on in. Come in and celebrate. Look at, let's read the rest of it. As soon as your son was come, verse 30, who has devoured his living with harlots, you killed a fatted calf. The father says, Son, you are ever with me, and all that I have is yours. It was proper that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead, is alive again, was lost, and is found. That's verse 32. What does verse 33 say? What does it say? Nothing. He leaves the story hanging. Okay? He, it's, a, it's a clear illustration and an invitation that the Pharisees need to do something. But he doesn't tell us what they did. The choice is there. Not a forced situation. Just leaves it open. That just that we don't know how the Pharisees responded at this moment. What they thought. Did they pick up stones to stone them? Did they say, yeah, we need to repent? Now, we do know in the book of Acts, do some of the Pharisees repent later on? Yeah, they do. They do. Okay, so some of these stories are laying the foundation. But what we have is basically a hanging story, and it's left up to the Pharisees. Now, I, now Luke doesn't record it. I wonder if God has Luke not put a period at the story, because as readers read it, in the New Testament era, as the witness of Luke's gospel is spread to the Jewish churches, or Jewish synagogues, if Jesus didn't leave it, or God didn't leave it hanging, so that the audience would say, wait a minute, what are we going to do with this? I wonder if it isn't left open for us in modern day America, so that as we read it and say, which one are we like? Are we like the rejoicing angels, or are we like the bitter angry brother who doesn't want repentance given out to people. You say, well, nobody thinks that way. I think they do. I think they do. 
We had a deacon in our church years and years ago who got very mad at our ministry and, and said, I'll never come back to this church because we're getting too many people saved. How do you get too many people saved? How do you get that? So is there a possibility that some individuals can be upset, even in places of religious authority? Can they get upset over the salvation of souls? Yeah. Yeah, and so we have to ask ourselves some questions here. Okay, we should not think, and this is the point that he's giving, God does not rejoice in the destruction of sinners. We have to remember, that's his point. Number two, do we should not rejoice over the destruction of sinners. We should have the mind of Christ. Let's go on. Do I rejoice over the loss being recovered the way God does? Okay? And it's, it can happen so quickly. I, I understand. There's other, there's other factors here. But could we easily get bummed out that people are starting to come to our church who don't dress like us? They, they take our seats. Okay. They may, we may, they may smell funny. Yeah, those things can come into play. That doesn't mean that every case that the individual is saying, oh, I don't want people saved. But there's, there's a higher factor here that says, wait, now, wait a minute. Can we give up our pew seat for the goal of seeing people saved? I think yes, absolutely. And you can say, well, Pastor, that's easy for you to say because you get to stand. Okay? We should be open and willing to any type of individual to come and hear the gospel. By the way, we should be open and willing to reach out and welcome even gay people to hear the gospel to get born again. Their transformation will come by the spirit within. And they're, they're, we need to be sharing with them the truth of the gospel so that they can find real joy and real, real happiness. So we got to be careful. We should do that with, should we do that with a harlot? Sure we should. Should we do it with somebody who is wealthy and, and arrogant in their own wealth and success? Absolutely. Absolutely. We should have a spirit of, okay, we're willing, wanting to see anybody saved of any type. Because, by the way, except by the grace of God, there go. Yeah. Okay. Here's what. Do I respond more like the older brother in the parable? Am I hesitant? Am I cynical? And, and I got to tell you. There have been moments, none of you probably have done this, but in my life there's been moments that I've been hesitant and cynical where I've taken my eyes off of others and what Christ has done and it's been all about me. And maybe you've had those moments too. It's good for us to reflect and say, hey, we have to have that mind of Christ. Do we value the loss the way God does? Enough to personally be moved for their, that they're coming out of their lostness. Let's go a little bit further. Do you personally make any effort to recover any of the loss the way God did? God did. Okay? God is seeking, wanting them. Do you welcome the lost like God did when they are recovered? Or are you critical of the way things are done to reach the lost? And I understand. I understand where there's a propriety in being critical of the way some people would try to reach the lost. We need to be discerning, do we not? Okay, let's go back to what we said last week or the week before. I and you should be critical of easy believism. Because that doesn't really reach the lost. We should be discerning and critical of that. I'm going to be critical of the preacher who advertised in his church and had his church advertise, come to our service this Sunday morning and you will see something that nobody in the world has ever seen before. And afterwards, nobody will see again. 
This is going to be a unique service. And they promoted this. Something will be revealed in this service that will never, ever be seen at any other time in human history. So they packed out the church. They did this promotional. The pastor stood up, grabbed a peanut, opened the shell, said, here's the peanut, swallowed it. You have never seen it before. You'll never see it again. Okay. I'm critical of that type of showmanship. Because if you were there and you were a lost person, what would you think? By the way, I'm a saved person and I think it's ridiculous. Okay. So should we be critical of some of the perversion of the gospel? Yes. But when the gospel is being preached by somebody, I'm, Brian, I'm going to use you. I don't mean it at all. You're a dear friend. If Brian and I were not getting along and I didn't like the way Brian was doing something, should I be upset by him winning people to the Lord because I don't like Brian? No. Paul even says, I am so glad that the gospel is being preached in the book of Philippians, even by people who are doing it to get under my skin. Competition? I don't know. He says, I just rejoice the gospel is being preached. He is dealing not with false gospel, but with true gospel being preached. So you and I, we need to resist the false gospel, the attempts to, to blemish the gospel, but where it's preached clearly with repentance and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, let's rejoice in it. Let's be glad in it. Okay? We should not hold people's past against them. Should we be cautious? Okay, let me throw this out to you. Okay. Somebody gets saved uh, and they're in their background, they're a child molester. Okay. And they've been, they've had that issue in their life. We rejoice that they are born again. Yes? No? Okay. Should we put them in charge of the nursery? No. But they've been restored by Jesus Christ. Okay, there is some consequences of sin, no matter when it is, that we need to be cautious, correct? Okay, and so we need to do that. In fact, the Gospels talk about a cautiousness. Uh, in the epistles, I mean, when they, they say, okay, let's not, let's not put people who are neophytes in charge of ministries. Boy, that happens in America. We are such um, idolizers of people, do we not? I mean, we get, we get celebrities who have no knowledge of anything but memorizing lines to testify before Congress because they're a celebrity. Does that ever happen in churches? Somebody who's been involved with something, you know, they get, you know, some famous athlete gets born again this past week, so we have them in the pulpits on Sunday to tell about their experience. That's a neophyte. We don't know where they're going, what they're doing. We need, to be, we need to make sure that, according to 1 Timothy 3, there is some discernment. So we're not saying, let's throw out the baby with the bathwater. We're saying, okay, let's, let's have a balance of being enthused and excited and welcoming people who have a desire for the gospel and train them so that they keep to the gospel. So with that in mind, do you rehearse in your mind your good deeds in place of reaching out? What I mean by that is this. The, young, the older one, he is not excited about his brother coming back. He's more excited about, well, look at all the labors I've done. Look at all the labors I've done. I, I can do this. So can you. I can easily do this. Well, look at God. I'm not sharing the gospel, but I'm preaching. I'm preaching on Sundays to a crowd of a few, uh, you know, several hundred. I'm preaching, therefore, that's good enough. I don't need to witness. Um, I, I, I study my Bible. I don't mean this in a bad way. Please don't take I give probably do more in a Bible study time than the average Christian. I, I think that's a fair statement. Okay. Okay. And it's not to be boastful, but that's my job. I need to do that. Correct? Okay. So I do that. And I say, well, in so, so I don't have to witness. That's not true. 
Sheep are to produce sheep. And I shouldn't be like an older brother that says, I'm not involved in getting people saved because I'm doing some other Christian labors. I'm supposed to be involved no matter what my position, so are you. And so we need to be careful. Let's go on. Jesus is dealing with attitudes that are errant. He is going to continue. Now, to you and me, we might look and say, okay, these are just stories and chapters that have no continuity. Oh, there is a thread of continuity. He has just pointed out the erroneous attitude of the Pharisees. Chapter 16, guess what he's going to do? The erroneous attitude of the Pharisees, not about law souls, but you see it up here, he's going to point out an erroneous attitude about money. And he's going to deal. By the way, is money an important part of our life? Does it affect what we do? Oh, could money, let me throw this out, could money affect the way people witness or not witness? Yes? No? Yeah. Because some of us might not witness for fear of losing our job. Yes? No? Because if we lose our job, what's it, how's it going to affect us? No money. Okay. So he goes one, from one right to the other, and, he, and there's, a, there's a thread here. There's, a, there's, there's a, uh, a commonality. And so Luke isn't just throwing things together. God has by design said, okay, Jesus taught this. Here is, he's dealing with the Pharisees and their goofy teaching. And he's going to point out some of the goofy teaching of the Pharisees that, by the way, you and I, unless we understand what they were teaching, this chapter isn't going to make a whole lot of sense. So we got to do a little bit of a background. Okay, we have to understand, okay, some thoughts biblically. According to the chapter of 28 of Deuteronomy, this is a truism. You can go back and read it for yourself. In the Old Testament, God gave them, when he gave them the law, he said, if you obey me and you serve me, I will send you different type of weather. Do you remember the weather he's going to send? Yes, no? He's going to send rain. Remember when he said the early rains and the latter rains? Okay, you, you and I say, oh, well, that's, that's okay. What's that mean? Yeah, it means exactly. Back in Bible days, what kind of irrigation did they have that was mechanical? Okay, so they really depended upon the early and the latter rains. God said, if you obey me, keep my commands, I will send you the early and latter rains so that your crops grow. If your crops grow and you're a farming community, what's that mean for you financially? You're not only going to have food... But you're going to have money. Okay, you're going to make profit. Exactly. And so that's a promise. If you obey me, I will take care of your needs physically. Now, let me, let me throw something. Throw this out. Does that mean that God planned every single one of the Jews to be wealthy, wealthy farmers? What's that? That was a national thing. Within that nation, could some be richer than others? Yeah. And in the law, he said, those of you who are wealthy, what should you do with those who are very poor? You should take, help take care of them. Okay. So we know that there's going to be that balance in it. Okay. There, the, in that law, let me, let me throw a thought out. I'm going to, it's going to come up in a minute or so in the notes. But let me throw a thought out. Did God, did God make any provision? No, oh, how do I want to say it this way? Um, is it wrong for people to have wealth? No. Okay, it's not. It's when the wealth owns them. Okay. Do, is God a socialist communist that he wants everybody to live on the same plane financially? No, 
No, that's not true either. Okay, that's not true. However, did God make some provisions in the law for Israel to prevent a certain few from gathering and keeping and gaining all the wealth to the detriment of the other class, lower class of people? He did. He did. What was supposed to happen every few decades? To try to keep some, some, I'm going to use the word, please understand, tongue in cheek. I'm going to use the word some equity here. Okay? Some equality. Not that everybody's going to have the same amount in the bank account, but to prevent a certain class of people dominating the wealth and therefore dominating society. What was supposed to happen with lands? Every 49 years, every group of seven, the lands did what? They went back to the family clan. Okay? What happened to the indebtedness? It was canceled. Okay? It was canceled. So basically, where did everybody start? Again, about every 50 years. More than even plain. More than even plain. Now, some still have more wealth in their bank accounts, things of that sort. But what would that prevent? Okay, I'm, I'm, and again, I am not against wealth. But can there be an abuse of wealth by the wealthy? Yeah, so it would, it would curtail corporate greed. Does that make sense? Yes, no? And I'm not against corporations being successful. I don't think that's wrong. I'm all for a capitalistic system. But in a capitalistic system, can some become exorbitantly greedy and feed off the common Joe? Yeah, and I think that's wrong. I think that greed is wrong. And so God had put in the Old Testament system a system that would, that would not keep the poor forever in poverty. Okay? And so he had that in the law. His point was that, okay, you need to obey my law. Everybody needs to obey my law. Now, the Pharisees are saying this. They say, God says if we obey, he's going to make us wealthy. There is a tinge of truth to that. He said he would prosper them. They took it to say that means he's going to make us wealthy. So wealth shows God is blessing us. So they, by their logic, they came to this point. Their wealth was proof that God favored them. Because God said he would prosper if we obeyed. Therefore, if we're prospered, that means God is blessing us. The problem is, their prosperity came at the expense of everybody else. Their ethics in getting prosperity, uh, how do you want to describe them? Their ethics, give me a one-word description of their ethics. Okay, lacking? Yeah, that's good. I was thinking stinks. Okay, they are stank. Okay, their, their method of getting money. They basically came to the conclusion is as long as I've got the big bucks, God is behind me, no matter how I got the big bucks. Okay, do you agree with that? No, do you think that's what God meant in Deuteronomy 28? No, not at all. But that's where they came. That's why, that's why they 